Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. It may be a new year, but I wanted to discuss a topic I've been talking about for a long time. Who gets a social media megaphone and who has the power to turn that megaphone off? Lately, this conversation has been dominated by the decision of many tech platforms to kick off Donald Trump after his egregious behavior on January 6th. But companies have grappled with this issue since well before Trump, and I want to talk to someone whose job it was to do just that. Dick Costello was Twitter's CEO from 2010 to 2015, before the height of Trump's tweeting, and during what many consider the company's most formative years. Before Twitter, Dick had an unconventional background. Sure, he was an early tech entrepreneur, back when people were still calling the internet the World Wide Web, but he was also an improv comic in Chicago, a pastime he leaned back into after his Twitter days when he went to work on the HBO series Silicon Valley, which, by the way, also featured cameos by me. I wanted to talk to Dick, now a venture capitalist, about Twitter's evolution during the Trump era, and I wanted to understand where he sees the politically important platform going, especially now that Jack Dorsey has stepped down as CEO and handed over the reins to Parag Agrawal. So Dick, welcome to Sway, and it's good to see you. It's been a while. It's so good to see you. It's been, it's been a long time. We used to talk all the time, didn't we? We did during your CEO days, and then I became, and then I was nobody. So you stopped. You know, you lost. You, you <laughs> gave me the true. new phone. Who this? <laughs> no, I, didn't. I never <laughs> did. I like you, as opposed to other people. Anyway, let's start on Twitter. I want to get to the wider tech world, but I also would love you sort of your thoughts about the regime change. Were you surprised that this happened? No, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One, I think something people probably don't understand is that running Twitter is like running any other company in dog years. A year at Twitter is like being CEO of any other company for seven years. You're in the press 20 times as much as any other company. Anything you do, it can be the smallest change. Half the people hate it. You're an idiot. Why did you do this? At the same time, the other half of the people are, why aren't you doing more of this? And by the way, they're doing it on your own platform. You see it all the time. And that's before a bunch of the stuff that people don't see, which is security threats, there are death threats from terrorist organizations. There are death threats from left and right wing organizations. There are requests to come and testify in front of heads of state and legislative bodies in other countries. So it's just a wacky company to run. And when I resigned, Jack was not raising his hand. Oh, pick me, pick me. Mm-hmm. The board asked him to step in as CEO. And, you know, he did. So it wasn't something that he was clamoring to do. Um, as a not-so-minor footnote, he's running a $100 billion other company. So, no, I wasn't surprised by it. 
was okay. All right. Do you surprised by the timing at all? The market seemed surprised. Twitter stock went bananas for a bit, but then landed back at $40 a share, where it spent a lot of time over the last few years, um, kind of dead in the water. It's a huge brand, but not a huge business. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, first of all, I disagree. There's not a huge business. It's a, you know, we took it from $0 in revenue to two and a quarter billion a year in, in five years. So lots of companies would love to have two and a quarter billion a year in revenue in five years. But I get what you're, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, it's the stock appreciation compared to tech. Because here are all these companies that went up substantively during the pandemic. And before that, we're really, you know, sort of running hot. The only one that hasn't gone up, though, is Twitter, which probably is the most well-known or has the most passionate user base, never got that bump. Why do you think that is? It's a fair question. I don't have I don't have a great answer. It's gone down and up. You could say, why is Rivian worth more money than GM when they haven't sold a car yet? And like I don't have a yes, good why, I don't why, have Dick? a good answer for you on that. <laughs> I mean it looks neat, but like lots of things look neat. And I'm sure it's gonna be great. You know, imagine being CEO of General Motors, you're like, man, we've sold like millions of cars. These guys don't have one, you know, off the line to their first customer yet. I mean, just, it is what it is. I don't have good explanations for these things. All right. So one of the things that Twitter did have is a huge boom in popularity when you had a kind of external chief marketing officer when Trump and his thumbs became president. Talk a little bit about the Trump bump, essentially. And what, is it a good thing to have people like that on the platform or not? I mean... You you avoided it. Luckily, you avoided it. Um, On the Trump stuff, it's hard because you come up with this set of rules, the terms of service, and they're applied equally to every account on the platform. And I think that's wrong. People may say like, well, if you make it subjective, it's going to really be the Wild West. But the reality is it ends up being subjective anyway, because someone comes up and walks the very fine line and you have to make a subjective call anyway about hey, is this a violation of that term or not? Yeah, Alex Jones was very good at that. Yeah, you end up seeing when you suspend an account, people turn themselves into pretzels trying to explain which term of service the person violated. So I'll give you a a great example of what happens inside that company from when I was there. So ISIS posts these um, videos to social media, YouTube and Twitter, et cetera. My general counsel pulls me in a room, the head of trust and safety, and hey, we think we should suspend accounts that are posting these photos or videos and seems like a no-brainer. And I'm like, yeah, agree, do it. So that happens with this. We suspend these first few terrorist accounts. Lo and behold, the New York Post tweets out, because that's going to be on the cover of the New York Post, and, you know, okay, now what? And then, of course, people are saying, like, hey, you're suspending all these other accounts. What about the New York Post? And you have this hand-wringing episode inside the company, like, wait, but it's okay for the New York Post to post it, but not these other people. Which then leaves you in the censorship zone, right? I mean, because that's where that pushes you. Of course. Using this, what may seem like a simple example and an obvious decision, put us at the end of the day in this, why are you guys the arbiters of what the New York Post can and can't do? Well, like, well, that wasn't the initial decision. We were just trying to suspend these ISIS accounts that were retweeting the photos and videos. Any decision you make about any abuse that in one context seems obvious, in another context is completely unobvious. Mm -hmm. And people write all the time, well, they should just have one clear set of rules and apply that to everybody the same way. It's just simply not the case that that is the, ultimately the best thing for everybody. So you have to make calls, editorial calls. You have to make calls. And I think you have to make it clear to people like, you know what? Lots of these decisions are subjective, and we're not going to twist ourselves into knots trying to explain to you why we did X and why we did Y. This account we thought was just bad for the community, so we removed it. 
too bad. So sad. So why don't why don't tech companies do that? They never want to say that. It's a subjective, this is what we're doing. We're like the New York Times. Look, there's a good argument for if you go down the path Dick is advocating, it's going to be chaos. And then the people inside the company are just going to be deciding subjectively what's okay and what's not okay. And I'm saying, yeah, that's the world we already live in. So let's not pretend we don't live there. And let's make life easier for ourselves and the rest of the community in the beginning when we decide to treat the avatar who signed up on a Tuesday with zero followers differently than we treat the New York Times. All right. So then you had Trump. Now, you were not the CEO at the time, but you must have watched this. Like He's sort of the, the ground zero of this kind of thing. It was a subjective decision to kick him off. He did violate the rules almost consistently since he was there. Is it that he finally went too far? Do you, do you buy that explanation, which all of them made, which that he was a public figure and he's the president and therefore wider birth until January 6th? Yeah, I was of the same belief. First of all, you can't put yourself in Jack's seat because you have no, you just don't know the 9,000 other things that are coming at him. I'm sure senators, other heads of state are emailing the company and saying, if you do X, Y, Z, I'm going to drag you in front of Congress so quickly. So you can't put yourself in Jack's seat. But what I did say was, look, I'm not sure that you can remove the president of the United States from your platform. He was elected in a free election by the people in the United States. Like, who am I to say that, you know, the people who elected him don't get to hear from him? Um, so I think that up until then, I probably would have made the same, you know, it's hard, again, it's hard to say, but just don't think that it's a easy decision to say, well, we're going to remove the president of the United States because he violated you know, rule number 42. Except you're a private company and it's not, you're not a public square. I've had that argument all the time. I'm like, they can do whatever they want. And they're like, no, they can't. Yeah. By the way, we can, the company, we, I like to say we when you get excited about things. The company can do, the terms of service literally say, we may delete your account for any reason or no reason. And by the way, you signed up for those, whether you like it or not. So did January 6th change that perspective for you? I'm sure it did. And I, I think, it, I think, I mean, the short answer is yes. It has to be the case that, you know, inciting insurrection is um, whether you, you know, agree or disagree that that happened. It has to be a case that if you feel the person's inciting insurrection, it's perfectly fine to take the next step and suspend their account. You know, I think one of the things is I always make the point of the First Amendment. They're like, you can't stop my speech. I'm like, Twitter's a private company. And they're like, but my free speech. And I'm like, it's a private company. You can't go in a restaurant and yell. Yeah, that's you can't, correct. You can't, they, for some reason, they can't make that leap, which is really interesting, especially on the right. Like you have a Josh Hawley or someone else, you know, saying they've been censored. And the algorithm, Twitter's own research shows that its algorithm promotes right-leaning content more often than left. Yeah, I saw that they did that. I think that kind of stuff that Twitter does, which is, look, we're just going to make public the way some of this stuff works, is a great first step. And then, you know, look, a bunch of people are going to come out and go, well, that's nonsense. That's not really what happened. But I can tell you that it's almost certainly exactly what happened. Um, and I think that's a great first step. I just think that that next step is, look, the New York Times account and this account that were created two days ago are not the same and equal and not going to be treated with the same permissions. And so the idea of being more transparent, you think, is important given all the pressure that you yes. just show everything, show all your work, essentially. A hundred percent agree with that. Facebook got in a little trouble because they weren't showing their work and the work wasn't so pretty, right? Even if it's not pretty, as a CEO, you'd put it out there. Yeah. I always used to tell my managers, everybody has to understand what you understand. You know, if you just tell people, do this, why? You know, Dick said they're just going to be miserable and they're going to think your decisions are arbitrary and capricious. And you have to help people, you have to provide context 
It's not the Freedom of Information Act. You know, people shouldn't be able to email Twitter and go, what did this board member Brett Taylor say when Jack told you he's going to resign? I would like that. It's not the Freedom of Information Act, but providing context for the decisions that have been made and how they're made is extremely helpful to everybody. So one of the, the ways that Twitter is trying to solve this is through Blue Sky. Instead of the company deciding what users get to see, the shift allows users to pick their preferred recommendation algorithm, um, this idea of a decentralized networking effect. Do you think this is a good idea? I think it's a great idea to try it. One possibility is you wind up with an even more remarkable echo chamber of, I want to hear more from the people who think the way I do, and you lose all discourse. That's obviously one possibility. But I think it's a great thing to go try. There are also a couple blockchain-based efforts to go create a decentralized Twitter. So I think these are good experiments. It'll be interesting to see what happens when you know we all place our own filter over what the world looks like. There's an obvious downside, which we've already seen from pick whichever cable news outlet you want to pick, that it just amplifies your own echo chamber and you end up believing some of the craziest things out there. So either Fox News or MSNBC. Yeah, or, you know, or there are lots more to the farther left and farther right of both of those. And so when you have those, this echo chamber idea, does there have to be only one? I mean, I'm feeling like very Highlander here, but, you know, you've seen it coalesce. You get my reference. Any good tech nerd has to know the Highlander reference. If you don't, you're kicked out of the club. <laughs> Highlander, just so you explain it, Dick. It's a movie. No, you got to do it. It's a movie, Highlander, where they fight with swords until the death and there can be only one. And they just fight over eons and centuries. And, and that's the, the, the line, there can be only one. Is... There can be only one. I love the way you did that in such a... Your uh, summary was much shorter than mine would have been. So that was great. Yeah. <laughs> and then this guy does this. Sean Connery's <laughs> in it. That's all you need to know. Anyway, does there have to be only one? It's a good question. The beauty of trying a decentralized Twitter is we'll get to see, can the community, like a DAO, police itself and make it so, you know, find its way in the world and build this information utopia? Or will it inevitably devolve into here's the group over here that thinks X and here's the group over here that thinks Y and they will never, they'll never even see each other anymore, let alone have any intelligent discourse. For people who don't know, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. Yes, correct. Where the community makes the decisions, there's no one decider. The community gets together abiding by a, a sort of a set of operating principles and they vote, if you will, on whether we should do A or B. This is new world enabled by blockchain. Correct. I just I worry that when you make it a decentralized Twitter where everybody on the planet has a very severe opinion about how things should be done, that a decentralized Twitter devolves into there's these four filters over Twitter and nobody's seeing the same information anymore. Right. And it also is a question of whether Twitter is shirking responsibility for the platform. I wouldn't call it shirking responsibility. I would call it, hey... Half the people like what we decided. Half the people are like literally going to come kill you for what we decided. Maybe we should see if there's an alternative world in which everybody gets what they want. I'm just not so sure that when that happens, whether people will like it or not. It could 100% be a case of be careful what you wish for. So when you see these things like Parler or Gab, they could go on Blue Sky, for example. Sure. So imagine the Blue Sky platform where every single tweet that's ever been created, including the ones that would be deleted by the spam filters at Twitter and maybe only removing the totally illegal stuff like, you know, child slavery stuff, which horrible as it is, gets posted to all these platforms. And then you have these interfaces into it that are, hey, I want to join the, you know, I don't know, whatever. I want to join the parlor 
filter and the parlor filter only shows you the stuff that parlor deems to be not horrible or, or whatever their filters are. My perspective is that devolves. Other perspectives are, no, no, it'll be great. The community uh, will have these arbiters uh, like Wikipedia of what's true and what's not true, and um, it will work. And decentralizing it and allowing millions of people to help filter these things will um, prevent some of this horrible stuff from slipping through. Possibly. We'll see what happens, and it's a great experiment to run. So speaking of that, all this stuff is still in the hands of a small amount of people, most of whom live in Silicon Valley or have moved sort of nearby. First of all, do you imagine Trump will ever get back on the Twitter platform? He seems dying to get back on. Would you let him back on if he runs for president? I'm not going to put words in. Uh, I'm not going to say anything that would cause Parag grief. It's too hard to drive when you're not in the driver's seat. You don't have all the information. I would not let him back on the platform. Never meant never. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Cause some grief. Go ahead. No, I just think that Parag has got, you know, Parag's coming to this role. This is the new CEO of Twitter. Yeah, sorry. Parag Agarwal. He's coming to this role. There have already been like, you know, 19. Parag said this in 2010, and therefore he believes these things, and he's a bad person already. The guy's got his work cut out for him, and as it is, I'm not going to have any inkling about telling him what he should or shouldn't do. Do you think he was a good choice? Prague's a great human being. He's likable. You know, he's this great guy who wants to do the right thing. So I love that about him. And my my one piece of advice for Prague would be, you know, it would be the advice that Jeff Bezos gave me when I first became CEO. Um, would he call you up? Did he just call you? Ran- randomly, how about this for a name drop conversation? Okay, I like I was, that. When I first became CEO, I, I literally got to have this brief sit down with him. We're talking about you know, strategy. And there were there were three or four of us around this table. And someone said, well, you know, Steve Jobs, who was alive at the time, Steve Jobs says the most important thing about strategy is, you know, saying no. You have to say no to most things. Mm-hmm. And Bezos looked at the person and said, yeah, well, I like to do everything. You know, and he had that big Jeff Bezos laugh that he's so famous for and is so, so great and infectious. And he said, look, you know, my team has to talk me out of doing stuff. And when the sort of laughter died down, he, he looked at the round table and said, the thing that everyone needs to remember is there are many ways to be successful. And trying to read some management book or, you know, biography and then running the company that way is going to just create misery for you and everyone around you. You know, be yourself and don't try to run this company the way the last person or the person before that or the person before that ran it. And I think if Parag does that, he'll be, he'll be totally fine. One of the things about Twitter is it's always early to the party on ideas that others take advantage of. You oversaw Twitter's early acquisition of Periscope, a live video streaming app, and Vine, which was short videos. These were effectively Facebook Live and TikTok. Yeah. What is that like being sort of the planes are covered with the bodies of pioneers? (laughs) I mean, the challenge for us was we were constantly living in Facebook's shadow. I'm referring to when I was CEO. You're constantly trying to find a beachhead where the Facebook gorilla can't pound you into the ground and crush you. And like, well, okay, the beauty of Periscope was, well, this is, Twitter is already about what's happening right now. This is literally live reporting and live video about what's going on that people can interact with on the video. I just thought that was beautifully complimentary to Twitter. But of course, along came Facebook. And I don't think I'm saying anything that other people haven't said and the people inside the company wouldn't say, but Facebook is very, very good at copying what succeeds elsewhere and, and, and using it. They just are. Um, Although here comes TikTok out of nowhere, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. But in the case of Facebook Live specifically, that was yeah. basically Periscope. And then Facebook's got the ability to point their algorithms at 
put Facebook Live in everybody's feed. So then people are going to see like, hey, if you do this on Periscope, you're going to get, you know, 200,000 people watching. And if you do it on Facebook, you'll get 1.8 million people watching. And of course, everyone's going to go, uh, everyone, but most of the influencers and celebrity accounts are going to go use Facebook Live. And that's exactly what happened. And you also had tried to buy Instagram too. You were very close. We did try to buy Instagram um, about a month before uh, March 2012, which is about a month before Facebook actually bought it. We didn't have the balance sheet that Facebook had, but we tried and uh, made what was a significant, as much as we could from Twitter at the time, we just uh, couldn't get there. And I think that Kevin and Mike, so I'm talking about Kevin and Mike, the two co-founders, ultimately had the sense that, look, Facebook is much, much bigger. They're the winner. We're going to go, you know, hook our wagon to the winner. But I tried, I tried about a month before Mark got it, and I tried and tried and tried, and but couldn't do it. That would have changed the, I mean, it would have obviously, in many, many ways, changed the entire face of the internet. Yes, indeed. And I suspect they regret the decision now. That would be my guess. That's me ballparking it. But, you know, one of the rumors is that the Twitter is for sale, essentially. And I know you and I have had so many discussions of whether you're selling the company. And you always were like, I'm not selling the company. I'm like, I heard you're selling the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really was like constantly, I hear you guys are selling the company. I'm like, not selling the company. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these things well, are Mark always Well, Mark Benioff was looking at it in 2016, right after you left. Um, obviously, there was I've a heard, lot of I've interest. heard the same rumor. I have no idea. You know, you just no, don't. that is true. He told me it was true. Did you think it should be sold? Do you think it needs to? You're talking about Facebook no. being this gorilla. No, Twitter has to be an independent company. Why? Just because it's its 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 own unique thing in the world and tying it, let's go say, let's tie it to Disney. Now it's inside a company that's got this culture and ethics and way that it thinks about consumers with the crazy world of Twitter and people doing things that are very, very, very un-Disney-like on the platform. So, you know, it changes it completely. And I just think that it's best as an independent platform as much as people, you know, love to hate every decision that's made. Speaking of which, Jack has given up power as CEO. He claims it was because he didn't want the company to be founder-led for too long. Do you think that's the case? Or was that just a dig at Zuckerberg? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this. So when I left Twitter, I stayed on the board. And I thought, like, this will be great. It'll be helpful. So I go to the first board meeting where I'm not CEO. And about a half an hour into the board meeting, I remember thinking, this is the stupidest thing ever. I'm sitting here. Jack's got no ability to say, well, Dick's an idiot. And he's wanted by the campus police. And God only knows why he did this thing over here. Because I'm sitting here in the room. And halfway through the meeting, when we went out to a break, I walked up to the lead independent director, who at the time was Peter Curry. And I said, Peter, i like, this is stupid. I got to leave the board. I mean, Jack's got to be able to sit in these meetings and say whatever he wants without me, like, looming in the background. So I think that probably, you know, I mean, he's probably got the exact same perspective. Like, look, I don't want to go to the next board meeting and have Parag, like, explaining why he reorged. And I'm sitting there in the background, you know, twiddling my thumbs, staring at him. Right. Right. Yeah. Because he's got a lot of heft. Not that he has more heft than you, but he has more heft than you. <laughs> he created it. He has plenty more heft than me. What advice would you give him? Do you, do you think the experience changed him? Jack? He looked, the beard got longer, but what, what yes, Jack. I mean, I don't have, I don't have any advice to give to Jack. Jack is, Jack is his own person. I remember I was watching the congressional testimony. Yeah, he did pretty well. And Jack showed up with a nose ring and I was like, man, I can't believe he left that in there. God bless him. I would have been like, hey, if someone had told me I had to do that, like, I'll give you this much money to go do that, I would have said, I can't do that in front of Congress. And Jack was like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm doing it. And, you know, I mean, I love the, like, I think it was, I can't remember whether it was in House of Representatives or in the Senate, but the person interrogating him said, 
you don't look like the CEO of Twitter. And, you know, I think my response would have been like, well, you don't look like a United States senator. But Jack yeah. <laughs> Jack lovingly said, well, you, you know, my mom agrees with you. Yeah. Yeah. He did actually a good job. I've always thought yeah. he was quite a thoughtful person, although yeah. many people get angry at me when I say that. <laughs> I, I take him almost any day of the week over anything. So you have no, no advice from him. You think this crypto stuff is going to uh, no, work I mean, out? He knows what he's doing. I mean, he's, look, the guy founded and ran two companies that are worth over $10 billion, one of them worth $100 billion. I don't have any advice to give Jack. Jack is like a super smart guy and really gonna, and, and done quite well for himself. And I think it's all going to work out for him. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Elon Musk, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Dick Costello after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So I want, I want to get your thoughts on tech. Now, you're the managing part. You did move on. You're the man, you are someone. You're not a nobody, Dick. I don't know how else to put that to you. You're a managing partner and co-founder of, is it Zero One Advisors? Zero One that- Advisors, yes, with Adam Bain, who was the COO at Twitter after I left the nicest man in tech. Um, let's do a lightning round on what you think are some of the big themes happening in tech. There's a lot going on. Some of these have all have the ring of a Silicon Valley episode, by the way, which you worked on. Um, crypto. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. I'm very, very bullish on crypto in general and bullish on the idea of NFTs. The challenge is it feels like, um, I don't know what the right analogy is, but I was down in Miami meeting with some founders on a, on a deal we're trying to get into, and it happened to coincide with Art Basel. And you would run into people who were like, you know, I'm a Pilates instructor and an Ayurvedic masseuse or something. And like, what are you doing down here? I'm working on this crypto deal. So it's both super promising, but also, boy, like the gates to the zoo are open and everyone's running in. And it's just, you know, you have to really be thoughtful about separating the wheat from the chaff. I don't think that NFTs, for example, are just a fad. They're not. They're 
digital scarcity, which has never existed before. And those crypto, the crypto kitties got, you know, I, I had a conversation with Fred Wilson, who is a managing partner at Union Square Ventures. Um, and Fred was an investor in Coinbase many, many years ago. I sat down with Fred and like, how did you see when you did this crypto kitties thing years ago? Like, how did you see that? Like, you did it in how many of our years ago, six, seven years ago, and people were like, what a crazy investment from this otherwise smart investor. And Fred said, it's simple. It was obvious that digital scarcity didn't exist, and now it did exist, and it didn't matter whether CryptoKitties worked or not. I needed to be there for the beginning of it to see how it shaked out. Right. Explain CryptoKitties. Sorry, it was just a, it was, I'm going to butcher this, but it was really, the idea behind CryptoKitties was, here's an image, but this is the first one. We may make a million copies of this JPEG, but this is authentically, provably the very, very, very first one. The first version of this image, this digital image. And that, I mean, that's an NFT, essentially. Um, and the ability to create digital scarcity in a world where all the digital, anything digital can be copied millions of billions of times was innovative and is super important for the art world. It's super important for all sorts of other things, ticketing, concert. I mean, every music releases, everything will change. And it's, it's just, we need to see how it shakes out in the next couple of years. But it's a zoo right now, but it's very important. Yeah, so it allows, just so you know, people who don't know in the art world, for example, it allows creators to track their assets and also share in a possible future sales and trades and such. So it creates a trail for art and that's things right. like that as opposed and the ability, to... I mean, that's... And that's, scarcity the, is exactly your point. Scarcity is the most important part. The second thing you mentioned, the ability to share in the secondary transactions is obviously... That's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for folks like, you know, the National Football League. Like, man, we sell these tickets to the Super Bowl for at face value, and then they're trading, you know, out there on the street for $9,000 a ticket, and we don't get any of that. You know, this is the world in which the creator of the item shares in some piece of the secondary transactions of it. And they could get future upside right. of whatever it is, depending on who the artist is. Right. Anyway, now, so you, you covered NFTs. I agree with you. A very promising area. There's a great New Yorker cartoon of the character from Lord of the Rings, Gollum, the little monster. And he's staring at a picture of a ring on his computer. And Frodo, the hobbit, is standing next to him and says, no, you won't actually get to hold the ring, but you will be listed as its owner in an online distributed database. And, and that's, that's, probably the, that's probably the best explanation of NFTs of her. Thank you. That is what it was. All right, the metaverse. And yeah. specifically meta. I mean... You can I've, take each of them. The metaverse is not meta. Yeah, but yeah, they're different. They're trying. Um, I think the beauty of the idea of the metaverse is you'll be able to have these personalities in an online world that are um, can be very, very like you or very, very unlike you, and that's you know a fascinating thing. Um, not new. Not new at all, but more and more enabled by both AR, like you know Pokemon Go style things. And blockchain-based identity is helpful with this. So there are all sorts of things coming together that will really enable it in ways that hasn't been enabled before. Meta as a company is, I have no idea what Mark's idea of the metaverse is, but it seems to me most likely that the decentralized metaverse exists in a powerful way before the centralized version of the metaverse exists. So what do I mean by that? In the same way that the World Wide Web was this decentralized wild, wild west that enabled all sorts of new things in, you know, the early, mid-90s. It seems to me more likely that it happens in a decentralized way that people run toward more quickly than the likelihood a single company creates the one that everybody uses. Does it always tend towards centralization? 
I uh, hope not. I hope not, but worryingly, worryingly so to date. But I hope not. Yeah, I think it's gonna, they're not going to be the winners of this particular race. It's too difficult to win and keep winning like that. You can't copy this. This has to be created and be innovative. Right. Agree with that. Um, so government push for regulation. Are they serious right now when you're thinking about where to invest? How do you look at what's happening? I actually don't, I actually haven't concerned myself too much with regulation because, first of all, it's hard for anything to get done now in in Congress, let alone agree on how we're going to regulate some of these companies. The challenge for the technology companies, unlike some other industries, is they don't collaborate because they overlap and compete on so many things. So there's no consistent lobbying body, if you will, that can say, hey, here's, if you're going to regulate us, here's an interesting way to think about it. Instead, what happens is, you know, the representatives from company X go into Congress and go, you know who you really should be looking at is company Y. They're a monopoly. And by the way, company Y does the same thing to company X. So I don't have any idea how it's going to shake out. It will probably shake out to the detriment of the entire industry. Because when these these regulations end up getting passed, they usually have all these unintended consequences that harm the newcomers, not the incumbents. They make life more difficult for people trying to get into this space than people who are already in the space. Does there need to be breakup? You're, you invest in small companies. Is it very difficult to create small companies with all these large companies? No, there's just a ton of opportunity out there. It's almost never the case that these big incumbents are preventing startups from accomplishing their goals. So you don't think there's any problem with these large companies sort of owning giant stretches of search or social media or anything like that? Look, the antitrust stuff always like comes too late. You know, the the antitrust stuff, hey, we should go. I mean, remember when Facebook bought Instagram, the antitrust organizations were Google might be a search monopoly. Like you think? How long? Like you think it's 2020. They've been a search monopoly since 2005. You know, so the things that these government bodies look at are always the thing that they should have done 10 years ago and now it's way too late. And people have moved on and are working on much more innovative new things that these big companies aren't going to be able to go, you know, dramatically affect. So what about employees' efforts to change tech from the inside, whether it's by whistleblowing, employee activism? Your employees talk a lot. I know they did at Twitter for a long time, but now this is something CEOs and stuff have to do. When you do these startups, how do you look at that? Um, I mean, I think it's important that there be discourse inside companies. And I think that's been a challenge more recently as people start to import notions of cancel culture into the company. Like you're, you know, I think that's bad, but honest, forthright political discourse. And then by the way, that's why you've seen some of these, hey, no political discussions inside this company. I think that kind of blanket announcement is wrongheaded. And I've said as much and gotten all sorts of trouble for it. Yes, let me just quote you back in October of 2020. Let's be clear. That was a response to Parker Thompson and Jason Calcanis. And I was being sarcastic. By the way, I want to just, before you say the quote, I was literally getting on a plane to go on vacation in Cabo. And when I landed, I looked at my phone and it's, the tweet had 7,000 responses. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. Yeah, I've heard about that happen yeah. before. All right, back in October of 2020, when Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong announced he was banning at-work discussions about politics and societal issues, you weighed in tweeting, me first capitalists who think they can separate society from business are going to be the first people lined up against the wall and shot in the revolution. I'll happily provide video commentary. I can see that's a joke. Again, <laughs> that was a sarcastic response to Parker Thompson and Jason Calcanis. But the point of it was, like, you can't 
trying to separate business from society is like is like saying let them eat cake or shut up and dribble. Like, can we not talk about political movies now inside the company? What can we talk about? It strikes me as a inappropriate reaction to what I understand can be a like um, overzealous like the inmates are on the asylum. Like, hey, we're not gonna. But as but. The challenge for you as a leader is to get up and talk to the company about that. Look, political discourse inside the company is important, but we're not going to have this like, you know, mob rule where if everyone decides to cancel Phil, Phil's canceled. You know, like we're not going to do that. And I get that that's hard and it's a balance. And then you're you're the CEO of this company and you're thinking, really? I've got like these 10 business challenges. There's 900 Slack responses to this stupid thing. And your initial response is to say, look, no more discussion about politics, period, inside the company. I just think it's not the right way to deal with this stuff. You have to be able to have discussions and discourse inside the company, and those are inevitably going to have something to do with what's going on in the, in society. Okay, last question. Who's the most powerful person on Twitter? <laughs> oh my gosh, come on. I have like, are you kidding? I have like, this is, this is their only wrong answers. I don't know. I have no idea. Bill Simmons, the sports guy is the most powerful, probably the Elon. most powerful person. Elon, what are you, uh, Elon. Oh Elon. yeah, of course. Elon Musk. Can I tell you a funny, I'm talking out of school a little bit, but hopefully he won't, he won't be too infuriated about this. So um, I get up on stage on, I think it was June 11th, 2015. And I announced to the company um, that I'm resigning. And of course, while I'm talking, people are tweeting out in the audience, hey, Dick is, is stepping down as CEO. And I get off stage and you have, we have these internal dashboards that tell you about your, you know, who your followers are and what's happening with your follower account and blah, 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 blah. And I get off stage and I've got this notification, Elon Musk has unfollowed you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, ouch. <laughs> you know what? That's why I like Elon. <laughs> have you talked to him since? Yes. Okay. I walked right up to him and I said, you unfollowed me on Twitter, you jackass. No, I didn't say that. No, you didn't do it. Dick, this has been great. Yeah, that was a blast. Thanks. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. Edited by Naeem Araza with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Mahima Chablani. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode this way delivered to you, along with your very own Crypto Kitty, there can be only one, Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>